as evidence historically, or it's make believe. What'd you think? Come on, he's supposed to think something that's great. Yeah, he was way more digestible than Herodotus. Made a lot more sense. Digestible is a funny word. What do you mean? I mean, getting at the notion of what he was saying was a lot more plain and straightforward. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, unlike Herodotus, Thucydides is not primarily concerned with digressions within digressions. Nobody is more focused like a laser beam than he is on his topic. Yeah. And he gives us reasons for things, um, specific reasons and causes from just from the beginning that shows why things happened. Okay. Yeah. Um, he's very specific about cause and effect. He's trying to leave a record of great human deeds for future generations because human nature is the same everywhere and every time and if we find ourselves in a situation like this one the same results are likely to happen. In other words, if human nature were not predictable um, history would just be Herodotus, just be a bunch of stories. All right. So this is the social science that is derived from Physics 2.0. And I remember when I told you that the advent of a, of a scientific revolution always entails a corresponding change in human beings' self-understanding? Well, when you go from a mythological poetic account of nature to a scientific account of nature that we got with uh, Thales and Aximander, Anaximenes, Empedocles, Democritus, all those physicists, um, that's going to mean that you're going to change the way you look at human life. And you're going to ask new questions, and you're going to count new things as answers. All right. Now this is just one of the cultural uh, aftershocks of the first scientific revolution. Next week, when we do the Oristia, we'll see artistic aftershocks of something quite similar. Okay? So, yeah, um, Thucydides is Mr. Practicality. Don't pull his leg about any kind of mumbo-jumbo where uh, Zeus comes in and straightens everything out. This doesn't happen here. He doesn't want to hear about omens or prophecies or ancient uh, uh, mystical uh, stories. He just wants the facts. The facts as they appear to human beings. He doesn't want the God's eye view. He doesn't believe in the gods. I mean, he believes in them as a sociological fact, but not as a theological fact. Does it surprise you that Thucydides was educated by sophists? Nay, nay. The, story, the uh, speeches that he has in there, the beautiful antitheses, where one side says, takes one side, the other side takes the other, and they go back and forth. Um, this is essentially what you get out of sophistical training. They teach you how to make the worse argument appear the better. And they teach you how to, this is actually what, the, what happens in law school. Any of you thinking of going to law school? <coughs> Okay, well here's the deal. When you go to law school, what they're gonna do is teach you how to make the best argument for both sides in a situation. 
In other words, you're supposed to be perfectly capable of popping from one side to the other, from prosecution to defense, and know how to make the appropriate argument, the best possible argument that you can make for this side. All right? The sophists weren't concerned with the question of who's guilty and who's innocent. There's only who's paying their fee, and how can we get them what they want. Okay, so Thucydides is a tough-minded realist. God willing, if we're all around for next fall, you will read Hobbes. And Hobbes, first, the first book Hobbes ever, ever, ever wrote was a translation of Thucydides into English. Now, it makes perfectly good sense. If you know what Hobbes is like, he's the guy who thinks that Absolutism is great, and without it, life is poor, solitary, nasty, brutish, in short. Well, it picks up right up from Thucydides. And he says, look, England's in the midst of a civil war. What you all have to read is my English translation of Thucydides, and then shut up. Impose some peace on this. Stop telling me that Jesus really likes your side. I don't want to hear any more about this crap. Big fish eat little fish. And I'm calling on the big fish to eat all the little fish now so we can get back to a state of peace. I don't care who wins. So Hobbes is also a political realist, which means the politics is about power, not about morality. All right, what else you notice? Yeah? I thought it was kind of surprising, and maybe I'm just not as familiar with the sophists, but given he was trained by sophists, I was surprised how much he cared about getting the Mm -hmm. the truest one, rather than, like, you can tell a tall tale that will still get your point across. Right. Uh, but he cares so much about Well, here's the deal. Thucydides says that facts matter. Facts are what the book is about. All right? The most important and uh, the most important facts that have the greatest implication for our understanding of human nature and human society. On the other hand, Although a wise man will have the facts, he will also have the capacity to bamboozle the uneducated hearer into going whichever way he wants. But for those that are in the know, facts are absolutely indispensable. Right. Remember that the, the sophist told you um, what Thrasymachus told you, justice is the advantage of the stronger. All right. Well, in order to get that advantage, you have to know what the circumstances are, and you have to know what you're trying to accomplish. You can't do that while skeptical about the facticity of the world. So his skepticism doesn't go as far as somebody like Gorgias. And you never know if Gorgias actually means or believes the stuff he says. He's just messing with your head. Right, when he says nothing exists, well, okay. You still want to be paid, right? Well, yeah. All right, so much for nothing exists. So, yes, he is concerned with facts. Very different from Herodotus. Herodotus knows a good story when he hears it. What about the ring that got tossed in the water and eaten by the fish and then got back? Now, the cities would look at that and say, oh, please, save that for the children's hour. All right, my history doesn't involve stuff like that, you know? I feel like that's pretty evident through how he's like describing the plague. He just like gives the facts about what it was and what it looked like, and he doesn't go into like individual stories of this person who went through this or that. Okay, certainly that. 
The plague owes much to Hippocratic medicine. Not that the cause of the plague, but his description of the plague is in the context of this new applied natural science. Compare this plague with the plague in Book One of the Iliad. Okay? Book One of the Iliad, you cure a plague by giving the girl back to the priest of Apollo, because that's what causes plagues. Apollo's pissed off. <laughs> Here, he wants to hear no crap about that. No god is pissed off. You can't placate them. They have nothing to do with this. Instead, this has natural causes, has a natural progress. Most people die in the process of this. Not everybody does. Thucydides himself was a victim of this, but he survived. But he said, look, when people were under stress, they did all kinds of stuff. They decided to clean up their lives, to uh, do the right thing, to sacrifice to the gods and perform rituals and ceremonies. And he said they died at the same rate as everybody else. All right, so that made no difference. That's completely useless. You are to draw a different set of conclusions about this plague than the plague in Iliad Book 1. This is science 2.0. Everything has a natural cause, and we can describe it, and that's the first step in getting control of it. What's no step towards getting control of it is telling me that it's caused by disrespecting the priest of Apollo. That's completely useless. As a matter of fact, that will move you in the wrong direction. If we, t if we educated young men, particularly wealthy, ambitious young men, in the stories of Homer, there's a religious source for epidemics, and that's dangerous stupidity. Fact of the matter is it's natural like every other disease, and religion has its place in controlling the majority of uneducated people, but for those on the inside, the religious services and ceremonies are a waste of time. You only do them to keep the people happy. Right, so you play on their ignorance. But you yourself should not mistake uh, Homer for literal truth. Follow Thucydides instead. He said, I'm a reliable guy. What else? Yeah? Um, about more about the plague, I found it interesting how he also points out how people stop, like citizens of Athens also stopped observing religious customs because they, like, they stopped performing burial ceremonies and just threw bodies in the piles and lit them on fire. Okay, that's really important. The fragility and even essence of political order is one of the main themes of the book. It's a hell of a great achievement to construct something like Athens. Any substantial political order, think of ancient Persia or Persia or later on ancient Rome, all of them are great works which are ephemeral and easily lost. In other words, they're much harder to construct than they are to destroy. And that's true in general. <clears throat> Criticism and destructive activity, pretty much any idiot can do that. All right. It takes people with skill you, involving a lot of labor to create something as great as Athens. They are the heirs of a great tradition. 
And Thucydides doesn't want them to mess it up, but they do. So the uh, fragility of public order is a hard equilibrium to create. And we do it by finding reasonable middle ground. When you can't find that anymore, the entire political order is in danger. All right. What else? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Hobbes as sort of a just whoever wins, somebody's got to win and yeah. take over. Does Thucydides uh, have that, or is, is he something of a patriot? Oh, he is a patriot, but he was a noble Athenian who was raised to the status of general, and then he was sacked and had his position taken from him after a naval battle in which they failed to save the soldiers that had been cast into the sea. So there was really, I mean, it was an impossible circumstance where they couldn't stay and actually uh, take care of the soldiers who were swimming. Or, but when they got back to Athens, the Athenians were really ticked off. Why? Because the mob, the people, all right, are fickle, irrational, and easily excited. So the fact that Athens is the world's first democracy, granted that democracy has many uh, limitations compared to our understanding of democracy, it's the first democracy, and Thucydides is concerned with, pu with public opinion, because in a democracy that counts for a lot. Whoever can sway the people to his side will gain power. The problem is, there's a disjunction between the people that are able, that are persuasive and the people who know what's going on. Wait until we get to Alcibiades. He's my personal favorite. What a piece of work that guy is. In some ways, Alcibiades is the natural outcome of sophisticated teaching. He's not a team player. He's out for number one. And he, of course, is a master of oratory, so he gets the crowd behind him. And as a result of being persuaded by, this, by Alcibiades, that's what causes the destruction of Athens, ultimately. So this, was, this is a story about hubris. And you'll find, because we're doing the Oristia next week, that hubris is a main concern of the Greeks. Remember that the myth which expresses the Greek attitude towards life or what you might call the stance towards being. They want to push the envelope. They want to be heroic. They want to steal the fire of the gods. Prometheus is the ideal Greek. Now the problem is, stealing the fire of the gods is a dodgy prospect. Human beings are not gods, but if they're Greek human beings, they want to be. And it's the idea of displacing the gods and becoming more than human that animates Greek culture. In other words, whatever the boundaries are, they're going to go past them, thinking, my, this is really great. But unfortunately, it turns out that even 
heroic people make mistakes. As a matter of fact, not only do they make mistakes, but they make bigger mistakes than most on account of their hubris, and that leads to destruction. One way of thinking about it is that Athens is the place that invented tragedy, and life imitates art. If you've seen enough tragedies for long enough of superior people doing superior stuff and then totally messing up their lives in a way that can't be fixed. This is part of why Plato in the Republic is so interested in censoring the poets. He said, look, if you raise young people on Homer and on tragedy, well, something like um, Oedipus, where he kills his father and has sex with his mother and has a number of children that are incestuous, um, that's a really messed up idea, and it's also not suitable for children. What the hell's the matter with you? Or think of Medea when we get to Euripides. Medea, crazy, witchy Medea, um, murders both of her children to get back at her husband because she's pissed off at him. Well, okay. Um, the Greeks or the Athenians saw this as fun for the whole family, which it is not. So Plato looks at this and says, well, I have a number of points to make about you. About me. I have the world's longest list of problems with Athens, but let's get to the number one. All your problems came because you were miseducated, which is worse than being merely ignorant. Ignorance is easy to fix. Miseducation is twice as hard to modify as ignorance, because then you have to unlearn what you already learned, which was wrong, and then you have to learn something new. Think of the Mino with with. Uh, Mino and the slave boy. Okay. So education is job number one in politics. It is the single most important issue. And Thucydides is trying to contribute to the education of future shot callers on their way to political power. If you fail to read Thucydides, you do so at your own peril. Thucydides thinks, look, human nature is the same all, everywhere and all the time. Sooner or later, you're going to end up in a situation like this, and the results are going to be the same. In other words, he's taking history as the empirical fountain, the empirical source of any possible social science, which it is. Any social science which is not based upon historical fact is literature, it's poetry. So Thucydides is tethering us to the facts. Yeah. Someone going to present this? Yes. Who has Thucydides? Ah, good. You got a lucky one. You got a good choice. Thucydides is great. You do a good job. and I thought it kind of summarized um, a lot of his 
uh, theory quite succinctly. So uh, the quote is, history is philosophy teaching by example. Very so nice. he's right on schedule. Um, and this, he comes in perfect conjunction with the, show, the scientific revolution. Um, man has begun to discover what has happened, that there are scientific laws that govern um, nature. And so now he's going to see that there are human laws that govern, which govern the social world. So, so this interview is right on schedule. Um, the product is one, history 1.0 and he's 2.0. Um, so there's a couple major themes that I want to touch on and then I'm going to give examples of each of them. So the first is Thucydides as the social scientist. So um, for me, or one of the examples I most enjoyed um, in this realm was um, in the plague, he was talking about how um, the people who got the plague, the number one, uh, the worst thing for them to do if they got the plague was despair of death and to be entirely frightened of dying. And he said that that completely took away their power of resistance in actually fighting the plague. And then the best remedy for people, or the best, um, yeah, the best remedy for people who had the plague was um, having someone nurse them who had already survived it. So there was a kind of like hope for them because the person nursing them was actually had actually survived. So this was kind of like, yeah, like psychology, social science, one point, uh, or like the, the first we kind of get of this, like Herodotus just really uh, give us examples of this in his work. So I thought that was really cool. Um, and then also he speaks of the societal effects of the plague, the lawlessness, the gluttony, people are um, seeking small pleasures because that's the only thing they can get out of life, death is reigning. Um, so he's showing us that morality and religion are, they're based in human nature. So, um, if, you know, with the plague, when human nature is attacked by the plague, they're gonna throw out morality and throw out religion. So there, it's like, it's a cause and effect relationship. Um, and the same with the, I think, the Corsiren, is that his Corsair, name? Yeah. Corsiren Revolution, or um, when they have that uh, confusion with Cor Corinth, um, yeah, Corinth, and then they, he talks about um, how the Corsairans go back to their um, their city and it's just complete chaos. And um, he tells us um, the effects of war on mankind and how you know everything is flipped upside down. Now uh, vice is virtue, um, courage is just boldness and rashness. Political relations are um, come before family. So he's showing us how um, uh, more yeah. So how morality is affected by by war. Um, but in the end, he says that um, people. Um, yeah, he has this last line at the end where he says the blunter wits are going to be more successful um, because they prepare for um, um, for their weaknesses, while people who are arrogant are going to actually fall. So he he tells us the effects, the cause and effect between. Um, lawlessness and war, but he says that in the end, people with hubris are going to fall um, because they don't prepare. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, also, I think one of his most important social science insights is the reason why um, the Peloponnesian War started, because Sparta, um, basically, it's really simple that Sparta saw that Athens was rising in power, and they didn't like and it makes total sense because what we know based on Sparta as a military people um, and uh, the fact that, yeah, they see that Athens rises in power, they're not going to be happy. So, um, yeah, so Thucydides, 
is just set up straight, um, and there's not much argument with him. So the second theme I want to touch on is history as a guide for the future. So he says that he admits this in history, his history will not be a romantic one, but hopefully it's going to be a possession for all time, um, and an aid to the understanding of the future, which in the course of human things must resemble it if it does not reflect it. So he talks about, I think his most important example, or important example is when he talks about the Trojan War. He tells us that he kind of sucks out all the romanticism of this Greek heroic virtue of like Greeks fighting because they love their country. And he's like, actually, Agamemnon was the strongest naval power, and so he actually made people fight for him because out of fear, not love. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and he also he criticizes all the things they did. Um, it says that they um, they weren't strong enough in their siege, so um, the war lasted way too long. They could have won more quickly. They didn't have enough supplies. And a lot of the, they didn't fight as a united force because a lot of their, um, a lot of the different groups of people would go out and pirate um, instead of actually staying and sieging the city. So um, so he's looking back at history and being like, look, this is what they did wrong, so let's look to the future and not do it again. Um, and then he also says, he talks about how um, at the beginning, I think it's in the first book around paragraph six, um, Athens and Sparta are, um, like basically the originators of custom and tradition. So like before that, the Greeks had no unity um, and no, they didn't even have a common name, which we see from Homer. And um, so and he shows us how, yeah, because of their skill, because of their intelligence, they're the founders of custom. And I think this is a really important point because he's saying that this is the reason why the war is so important. He's saying, look, Athens and Sparta are where we come from. And if they're butting heads and they're fighting, where are we going? So um, I think that's uh, a call to the reader to be like, this is the reason why the war is so important because they're, they're our founders, so what's gonna happen if, um, if they're fighting? So um, another theme is rise of reason over superstition and religion, science over poetry and legend. I think the best example of this is in the debate between the Athenians and the Milesians, or, or yeah, Milesians. Basically, Athens' argument is that, look, um, they're using empirical reason. They're like, look, our forces are stronger. We are stronger. You are going to lose. It's just, it's inevitable. Like, just um, submit already. And the Malians are still kind of clinging to this argument um, for the fortune of the gods and the goodwill of their allies and, you know, um, hope in freedom. And the Athenians are like, well, okay, like you can hold on to these uh, stupid beliefs, but they're not going to win you anything. Um, and I think it shows um, also that, um, yeah, the, so the Athenians, um, it shows the Athenians' hubris, and it also um, it links with the idea of the deification or um, of the, the Greek ideology because the Athenians, so at one point the Milians say, um, we're gonna, yeah, we still have the fortune of the gods on our side, we could win. If you never know if our forces could just do better. And the Athenians are like, all right, you can use that, that argument, but. We also have the gods on our side because we actually act like the gods. We, um, because we, uh, the strong, because of the rule, the strong do what they can, and that's that's who we are. So they're almost like they kind of like subtly make themselves gods. They're like, okay, you can use that, that argument, but the gods are on our side. That's a great argument, but remember, there's no subtle way to make yourself a god. Once you start talking about us being superior to all other human beings, you've completely gone bonkers. You've completely off the deep end, and pride going before a fall. So you're right. They make because their rhetoric is so good. It makes it sound like, well, that's a good idea. Yeah, 
the Athenians probably have gods on their side, and they're really almost gods themselves now. Well, the Athenians think that. The millions are less than perhaps. So your point is a very good one. Keep going. Yeah. Um, and so then the another example of the like kind of like science over poetry is at one point in Pericles' in his speech, he said that um, <coughs> Athens doesn't need Homer to prove their greatness because they have like physical monuments. So I thought that was a good example of kind of how like they're like who cares about the poetry? Like, what you see is what you get. Like, you know, we have the best city, and that's going to remain for ages. Um, so then, uh, last point is kind of um, in regards to yeah, um, revolution in ethics and religion. So um, Thucydides sees religion as it's a social institution. It's a main familiar um, particular values, and we see this in. Uh, Homer with Achilles and Odysseus, you know, they, they are the archetype of um, the perfect man, and they all, you know, all the values, that's what the Greeks are going to follow, but, but the difference here is that Thucydides knows how it works. The Greeks didn't really know, they like followed the, you know, the law of um, the idea that, you know, um, when, they, when they put out this, um, sorry, when, when Homer with the Greeks, because they're reading this poetry, they're gonna um, model themselves after these, these guys. But Thucydides now knows how this, work, that how this works. So he knows that morality is influenced, is created by tradition and custom. So he knows the system and he can use it, which is best exemplified in Pericles' speech for Athens. Um, because his praise of Athens and his rhetorical expertise, and just, you read it and like Athens just seems like the best city of all time. And, um, but it's a way of making, uh, of creating morality in the people, like creating the values that the people are gonna follow. You know, every year they have this tradition of um, giving a funeral oration with, to um, all the people who have died, and if he's doing this, then it's a regular way of, you know, influencing the people so that they're always thinking that Athens is, is the greatest city, you know, that's why we want, we want to live here, we want our sons to live and die here, everything is for the state. So um, it's a big uh, revolution in this idea of religion and morality because it can be influenced and changed and, and custom and tradition is what's going to influence that, um, which is exemplified in his speech. Um, so yeah, but in the end, um, he does realize how um, the hubris of the Athenians is what's gonna ultimately be their downfall. Um, so even though you know the, the Athenians are the school of Hellas, Hellas um, which Pericles says, um, and they, they can instruct their, you know, their citizens um, that Athens is the greatest, but in the end it's gonna be um, what um, is their downfall. And the cities understand this. So, um, yeah. That was a splendid presentation. That's what I'm looking for. Smart girl. Good job. All right. What she did was what I'm looking for. She talked and had some ideas. Just try and do that when you present. All right. Um, learning how to talk in front of people is a skill that can be learned, and you did a great job. Okay, a couple of points off the top. Number one, remember when Herodotus says nomos, which is convention or traditional law, is king? Well, the city says no. 
Ephesus is king. All right? Nomos comes and goes. It is easy to change political tradition. It is impossible to change Ephesus. In other words, you can't repeal the law of gravity. So Thucydides says, Herodotus is very impressed with nomos and with people's conventions because some people eat their dead father and some people don't. He says, look, if you squeeze people hard enough, the ones who eat their dead father will burn them and the ones who burn them will eat them if you require it. If forced, they certainly will. Don't kid yourself. They may not want to, but force isn't a question of what you want to do, it's what you have to do. As he says in the Melian Dialogue, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. Which in some ways encapsulates the whole idea of hubris. Thucydides thinks it's wise to be on the most powerful side. And there's much to be said for that idea. Now, I have to give you some background so you understand what a mess um, leads up to the Peloponnesian War. Okay, we got about a generation or, or two, you know, depending on, about 50 years between the beginning of the Peloponnesian War and the end of the Persian Wars, right, in 480. Okay. At that time, Sparta is the main land power. Their armored hoplite phalanxes are, if not unbeatable, they're very close. I mean, these guys are tough as nails, and they prove themselves at Thermopylae, you know, where they did their hair because they knew they were going to die. If you can't run away, and you've been trained all your life in nothing but war, you'd be surprised how effective that is in making warriors um, supremely powerful on the battlefield. I mean, they got no, there's no backing up for them. On the other hand, the Athenians are not primarily a land power. They are a naval power. They are good at navigation and trade. And the port part of the city, the Piraeus, is a kind of, something like like an oriental bazaar where you can buy anything from anywhere. It's an entrepot where people buy and sell and trade. But at least as important in the trade of goods is the commerce of ideas. You bring in all kinds of ideas from all kinds of places. Religious, poetic myths, various kinds of accounts of people and nature and things divine. So Athens is a bubbling cauldron of new interesting ideas. If you're a sophist, it's the big apple. It's the place you want to go. I mean, you'll you'll go to the other cities, but where the real money is and the real power is, that's in Athens. There's no point in sophists going to Spartans, to Sparta, because the Spartans aren't interested in learning how to talk. Uh, There's a part in Thucydides where um, there's an Athenian ambassador to Sparta, and he says, look, we got a couple of guys here, you know, it's a, a couple of guys as ambassadors, and 
we're expert rhetoricians. You know, we can talk long, short, we can give you pathos, we can give you logical ideas, we can do anything you want. He says, what kind of, 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 of speeches do you Spartans like? And the Spartans say, we like short speeches, because after that we're going to kill them all. All right, what was that? Um, this is not a great place to make money if you're a sophist, because no one will pay you to learn how to talk. They already know how to talk. All the talking they want to do is, we will kill you. Again, this goes back to uh, the Iliad. All right. So the magnet for new ideas is, is Athens. Athens has a large number of resident aliens. They're called metics. And they're allowed to live there and participate in the economy. They're just not allowed to vote in the government. And the, the sophists find Athens the most lucrative place to teach because there are lots of wealthy families with ambitious young men <clears throat> that want to learn arete, they want to learn virtue. What counts as human virtue or human excellence is going to turn out to be controversial. But part of it is understood to be the ability to speak and speak well in public, to be able to be persuasive and effective as an orator. That's the road to power in a place like Athens because of its democratic regime. Okay. Now, let's see what's going on. After 480, the Battle of Salamis decisively finish, uh, stops the Persian expansion. They go back and find some places, places that are easier to invade. All right. And the Athenian victory made them preeminent as a naval power. It comes naturally to a culture that's organized around navigation and commerce. You know, if they're going to protect that, they're going to need military forces on the water. Okay, so Athens is the leading uh, naval power, and after the war, after 480, there's no telling whether the Persians are going to come back or not. So the Athenians and the other Greeks decide they want to stay on the ready. Why? Because if you get caught uh, unprepared against something like the Persians, you could easily lose everything. All right? So. They form what's called the Delian League. There's an island in the Ionia, in Ionia between Greece and Turkey. It's called Delos. It's a sacred island to Apollo. And what they all do is the Athenians and all the little island communities, and some of them are not so little, some of them are actually pretty big, they're Crete, right? The island communities between Turkey and Greece all decide they're going to form a defensive league. They call it the Delian League after Delos. And the deal is this. All the members agree to contribute sailors and ships for a standing naval force. And the contribution will be proportionate to the size of the city. So naturally, Athens gives the most. But several dozen other cities also contribute. Now, 10. 15 years go by, and there's no sign of the Persians coming back. 
And as is the case in most unused military alliances, people start to say, why are we paying for this? Why bother with this? Right? If the Persians aren't coming back, then we shouldn't get our young men, put them on ships, and have them wait in Athens Harbor, you know, in case something happens. That's no good. And for the Athenians heard that there was some dissatisfaction and said, look, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Right? We're deal makers because we're the Athenians. They say, look, we'll change the terms of our bargain. Because right? we're going to need, look, you never know when the, when the Persians are going to be back. But instead of having your sons and your ships here in, in the harbor of Athens for extended periods, why don't you give us the equivalent in money for the men and ships that you used to give us, and we'll buy them, and that way your sons won't be stuck here, and you have a more predictable way of handling common defense. There was general agreement to this. So the members of the Delian League now every year send a ship there with a certain amount of treasure enough to pay off the cost of what they had previously given in ships. <coughs> now the problem is this, the problem with that is this. Once the members of the Delian League are no longer participating in their own defense, that means all the military power, at least in naval power, goes to Athens. And the Athenians, I mean they're almost they're too smart for their own good sometimes. The Athenians realize that this is a great deal. Why? Well, because every year that money flows into their treasury and they have immense shipyards in Athens where they build ships constantly. All right? Now, if you, ever, if you know who uh, John Maynard Keynes is, he's a famous economist from the middle of the 20th century. Keynesianism says, if you have the government spends money, what that is going to do is have a multiplier effect, and the people that get the money are going to spend it. It's going to make the economy boom. All right. And what happens when this money flows in? It's almost an avalanche of money every year into Athens. They spend it on shipyards, but the shipyard makers buy lumber and nails and the things you need, rope, and you have to pay the costs of either the slaves or the master craftsmen that are working on it. And they, of course, need some place to eat and sleep, and they need to buy the stuff they need. So the economy of Athens takes off. In other words, it's booming. And since nobody has these advanced ideas of economics yet, nobody really understands why, but Athens is flush with money. Now remember that Athens had been burned during the Persian Wars. So Athens undertakes an immense rebuilding project. And, and you gotta like this about the Athenians, they know the good stuff when they see it. So they build things like the Parthenon and the Areopagus. I mean, the things with, that we mean when we talk about Greek architecture or Greek culture, it's all in, or it's almost all in Athens. And it's being paid for by the, all these islands that surround it. Now, the Athenians are the first to figure this out. 
and I say, this is sweet. Because you move this money all around, we got the world's best sculpture, we have the world's best painting, we have the world's best architecture, and we are all better off for seeing that thing every day. That changes us. That beauty, that harmony, that rhythmic simplicity, that gestures at perfection, which is us. Don't mention that yet, though. <laughs> all right. But we produce the best of everything. That's what. Pericles says in his funeral oration. It's like what Lyndon Johnson said during the Vietnam War. We are the great society. He says, look, whatever human endeavor involves, we're great at it. We're the best at it. We kicked the butt of the Persians. Solid. Now we can beat the Persians, but we have the best art, the best architecture, we have all kinds of smart guys coming in and giving lessons and lectures and stuff. We're a center of culture. We are Greece. And not only are we Greece, we are pushing the envelope on what it means to be human. Damn, we're great. Okay. Now, eventually, the... Uh, islands that are giving this contribution, which starts out as being a contribution to the Common Defense Fund. Very quickly, this contribution turns into tribute. In other words, Athens is running a protection racket in the Eastern Med. It says, look, you put your money on the table every year, and things will be fine. If not, we have the largest naval power anywhere. The one that you built. Yeah, the one that you paid for. <laughs> now, if you stop paying for it, we'll be very unhappy. And if we're unhappy, you're going to be unhappy. So why don't we not have a discussion about whether you like this or not, because we don't care. Instead, why don't we discuss the question of, you would best pay this if you value your lives. How you like me now? So uh, this turns into a protection racket. Now all the little island nations between Greece and Turkey are now paying off Athens to protect them. And oh, they are getting protected. You notice that there are no Persian naval excursions during this time? Well, you could say that that's a tribute to how great the Athenian protection was. There's also the fact that the Persians weren't interested in the Med or in naval battles or anything like that. They're a land power too. But uh, the Athenians say, look, we keep the peace. Pay up. Now, during the war, the unfortunate island of Milos is going to decide to make a point of honor about this political tribute. Yeah. How did they stay neutral then if they technically were on like Athens' side? Did no, they're all on Athens' side. Um, you, when you say that you're neutral, it means you're no longer on Athens' side, which means Athens is going to send in a fleet of men, and they're going to wipe you out. Okay. So they say, well, can't we be neutral? Can't we be friends with everybody the Athenians say? No. <coughs> well, why not? I mean, we like you. We like the, the Spartans. We like everybody. Yeah, well, we don't like them. 
<laughs> and uh, you're going to continue to pay, or you're going to regret it. Yeah. Um, it's like I, I thought it was kind of funny that it's called the million dialogue because it's it's kind of just more of a thread, the whole entire uh, dialogue, I guess. Excuse me, it's like American diplomacy. They say an offer they can't refuse. That's exactly yeah. right. You make them an offer they can't refuse. And if they are foolish enough to refuse it, well, then you have to make an example of them, and then you exterminate everybody. Nowadays, if you go to the UN, there's no little desk for the millions because they don't exist. <laughs> and that's sort of Thucydides' point. He said, losing it at politics means that you stop existing. And he thinks that's a bad idea. Kind of Hobbesian in a way. But there's much to be said for that. I think you can take, you can be reasonably sure that if you and your entire people get wiped out, that you made some mistake along the way. Because that's what you're trying to avoid, getting wiped out. Yeah? There seems to be a remarkable amount of Machiavellian Thucydides. Uh, Machiavelli is going to think very highly of him. But remember, Thucydides is still a noble Athenian who has a sense of uh, noblesse oblige, which is why he's writing this for everybody else. And uh, also, they're in different political circumstances. Machiavelli's uh, Italian city-states are in a condition of weakness, and they're getting invaded by the Spanish and the French all the time. Um, Thucydides is talking from a, from a position of strength. Right? But the real politique, the amorality of it, that does have in common with Machiavelli. Yeah? So when he during this dialogue, would he have been with the Athenians like on the island waiting, or was he not a general at that point anymore? No. Look, he was never actually there. And he doesn't have what we would think of as a, a verbatim transcript like they have to the court reporters in, in judicial proceedings. There's nobody there doing that because they haven't invented that little machine, whatever it is. But the point is, he knows what the situation is. He knows what each side wants, and he knows what the ultimate outcome is. So he goes back and writes those things, making those speeches, making them up. He doesn't see that as being a violation of the objectivity of a historian. Because he says, look, I was trained by the sophists. All the guys that are running these societies are trained by the sophists, and they all got taught how to talk, how to speak in public the way I did. There are rules for constructing a discourse. So what he does is plug those rules in to the circumstances that he finds, and he says, this is what the Athenians wanted, and this is what the Athenians said. On the other hand, the, the Athenians were realists, and the Melians were idealists. He says, idealism turns out to be a losing strategy. All right? So all the speeches in here, almost all of them, he wasn't there for. He made them up. You'll find that in the last two books, because he dies before the history is over, um, well, before the actually the Peloponnesian War ends, um, the last two books don't have any speeches. It's clear that he wrote the history out and then went back and wrote the speeches to put in. All right? And the speeches are very powerful and very moving. The guy knows his stuff. Okay? He doesn't, I mean, a historian nowadays could never do a thing like that because our standards of evidence are much higher. But he's saying, look, um, we all know the same art of rhetoric. We all know what each side wants, and we all know what came out of it. So we know whose argument has to be the better, or whose argument has to be accepted, because we know the consequence. Plug and show. All right. Okay. Now back to the back to the to uh, the Delian League. So now, 
for about almost half a century, the Athenians are running this shakedown. And they're getting filthy rich. And they have an enormous navy and a pretty respectable army. And they are clearly in the ascendancy. They are becoming more powerful with every passing day. Now, the Spartans see this. And it makes the Spartans nervous. They go back many centuries, and they have a militaristic tradition. And they say, look, we're safe because we have the best army. No one matches swords with us because we wipe them out. On the other hand, these Athenians, they're tough. They prove themselves tough in the battle against the Persians. They have good leadership and good soldiers. And they have something we don't have, which is ships and a good navy. So the Spartans are worried. They see the rise of Athens as threatening to eclipse their status. And they know that Athens is increasing in power much more quickly than Sparta is. And Thucydides says, this is the real cause of the Peloponnesian War. I mean, they gave some excuses about Corinth and broken trees and stuff like that. He says, look, none of that is, is the real cause. Or as Machiavelli said, it's a great line, if you want to start a war, you can always find a reason, which is something worth thinking about. All right? I mean, if you, if you, find, if you want a war, you just make yourself super sensitive where something that you could have afforded to ignore, you decide, turns into a cause of war. We're declaring war because you did that. Okay, it's not the real reason. The real reason is power politics. The Spartans see this new upstart as a dangerous rival. It is actually a rational thing for the Spartans to do, I would say, to say, look, we've got to draw a line in the sand. We have to thwart the expansion of Athenian power. And it's reasonable to do it now as opposed to later because they're going to be even more powerful later. So now is the best time. So they send an ultimatum to the Athenians, and the Athenians say no. Thus begins the war. Yeah. Did they send an ultimatum as if they were the, the upper hand, or did they say like a straight like peace kind of a line? Oh, no, they said, uh, look, uh, we object to the way you treated the Corinthians. Withdraw your troops from there, and uh, we won't invade you. And look, that's no small uh, threat from the Spartans. I mean, you don't, if you can avoid it, you really don't want to mess with the Spartans. But Pericles, the great leader, knows how to handle the Spartans. He says, look, the problem with the Spartans is that they're one-trick ponies. On the ground, nobody messes with them. So the first thing we're going to do is put a big wall around Athens. And we're going to cut it off and we're going to leave it open to the sea. So when the Spartans come here, they're going to have to march from their own home. Um, when they lay siege to us, the problem is we can come and go as we want. And we just man the walls and there's nothing they can do about it. And what we do is, to really help the Spartans understand the situation, is we put together 
uh, a flotilla of a third or a quarter of our ships, and we send them to Sparta to invade, which flips the Spartans out. Once they realize that the Athenians are attacking the homeland, they pack up and go back to Athens. They do this year after year during the Peloponnesian War. The Spartans come in, and the Athenians run around them. And because water travel is so much faster than land travel, they get to and from much quicker. So the problem is now that the Athenians have a mobility advantage as well as a money advantage. Okay. So the Athenians are running a protection racket, and the protection racket continues on into the Peloponnesian War. <clears throat> In some cases, the Athenians decided to up the contribution unilaterally. And it turns out that they were met with grudging agreement, which is the wise thing to do, as it turns out, given the millions. Okay. Now, that introduction is justifiably famous for a number of things. First case, um, what is ancient history like? The cities runs through that pretty quickly on the first few pages. What's life like before we get to the city-states of Athens and Sparta? Yeah. It's nomadic and there's a lot of waiting and pillaging going on. Yeah, we're savages. We're lawless. So we're in the Hobbesian state of nature. And no settlement, no ship, no people is safe from attack. This is a big deal because a, a poet named Hesiod, not as old as Homer, but still science 1.0, pre-pre-Socratic. Um, Hesiod talks about a lost golden age, which turned into a silver age, which turned into a bronze and iron age, and now we're in this depraved, decadent age. In other words, we're not what our great-great-great-great-grandfathers were, because they were really great. They lived in a golden age, and they were golden men. The city says, that's a lot of crap. The city said, no, our ancestors, instead of being golden men, lived like feral animals. There was no political order, there was no civilization, and everyone went to bed with the hope that they would wake up in the morning. Okay? So, first of all, Thucydides uh, is getting rid of all that lost, archaic, golden age stuff. He says, that's all poetry and it's, li it's a lie. No point in trying to regain lost glory. There's no such thing. We are as good as it gets. All right? So there's no golden age. The real source of this war is an imbalance of power and the fear on the part of the established power, Sparta, Sparta that the up-and-coming power would supplant them and replace them. Right now, all right, Thucydides is very popular reading in Beijing. Ah, there are whole books written on the reception of Thucydides in Beijing recently. It's called the Thucydides Trap. Look it up on Amazon. There are books about it. The trap is this. 25 centuries ago, an ancient Greek historian wrote about the inevitability of conflict between a well-established hegemonic power and a rising power that's feeling stronger all the time. 
um, both the Americans and the Chinese recognize that this is like the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, our conflict with China. They're pushing the envelope. They, you know, they've taken those islands in the South China Sea. They're gearing up their war machine. Um, the problem is, this could easily lead to a war which nobody really wants because of the nuclear implications. All right? So right now, Thucydides is alive and well in the think tanks of both Washington and Beijing. As a matter of fact, if you go to graduate school and study international affairs, the first thing you will read in your reader on international affairs will be Thucydides' Melian Dialogue. Because the point is, human life and the circumstances of power have not changed in 25 centuries. Big fish still eat little fish. Hawks eat sparrows. Lions eat deer. And they don't feel bad about it. Because there's nothing to feel bad about. This is nature. I mean, it's just unreasonable to expect lions to eat grass. So yeah, of course they eat deer. What do you want them to eat? And what do you expect big, powerful nations to do except to oppress small, weaker nations? This is why almost all of the governments surrounding China have, a, have close ties with the Americans. And this is also why Latin America is developing increasingly close ties to China. Because in Honduras or in Argentina, they're a lot more afraid of the Americans than they are of the Chinese. So they work out deals with China, economic connections, things like that. All right. On the other hand, Thailand really loves America which you would too if you had the world's largest population on your doorstep, ready to roll in if it ever becomes necessary. All right? The Koreans, understandably, are paranoid. Hell, North Korea is paranoid of everybody. All right? But uh, power politics works the same pretty much regardless of the age in which it happens. There are many similarities here. Okay. So we got the Thucydides trap, and we're trying not to fall into it currently. And the Chinese are even more nervous because it's the smart, culturally superior upstart nation that destroys itself. That, that really makes the Chinese worry because they regard themselves as culturally superior to Americans who are barbarous. And they're very, they're very worried about the possibility of defeating themselves. So both sides are angling to avoid a war that looks more and more probable. Okay. So Thucydides gives us an accurate account of early history, and he gives us a much more plausible account of what starts the war. Um, it is stupid to risk your people and your life and your city and your very existence on some minor dispute in Corinth. It's not about Corinth. 
Look, if, if a war starts between the Americans and the Chinese, it won't be because their destroyer rammed our destroyer in the South China Sea. But you could easily see both sides escalating that and that going from bad to worse. And then you have something like World War I. You have a war that none of the people involved wants, but none of them know how to avoid. The city is right about this being a permanent contribution to our understanding of human nature and human politics. Yeah. It's powerfully applicable. All right. All right. Tell me about the funeral oration. What's going on there? Yeah. He's, he's pretty harsh, but he's realistic in a way that, like, I just remember one thing stuck out that he said for the mothers, like, if you're worried about your sons dying, just have more. Yeah, they're so replaceable. <laughs> Besides, we're going to need men in 20 years. Yeah. So go right to work. Have sex now. <laughs> That's a strange response to a funeral. Yeah. All right. Um, a couple of things. First off, this is not an ordinary speech. He is giving this speech, Pericles, because he's the intelligent, true ruler of Athens. In other words, he is a king in name, in everything but name, but name. In practice, he knows how to move the masses. He knows how to get people to vote the way he wants. And he's smart and he's patriotic. Thucydides likes him. But Pericles dies in the plague, and the people that succeed him, like Cleon and Alcibiades, are demagogues. They're stupid and they're vicious. And they're going to lead Athens to destruction. Now, Pericles has a job to do. The war is already on when Pericles gives the funeral oration. And the Spartans more than hold their own in land battles. In other words, if you're going to fight phalanx to phalanx against the Spartans, you can expect casualties. Now, that's actually what has happened. And a whole bunch of bodies of young men, young Athenians, who fought as hoplites, which meant that they were wealthy enough to buy the gear you need. So in other words, they're from influential families. And we have a big collection of dead bodies in front of us. All right. This is a crucial time for Athens, because the mob, or the voters, the people, might get it into their head that we should stop this, because you know, people's sons are dying. This is an awful thing. So, so Pericles is going to try and give the Athenians good patriotic reasons why these young men did not die in vain. The best analog to this in American history is Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Remember, Lincoln is standing over a field with 16,000 dead men on it. And he gives a very short 70-word speech. But what he has to do is say, these young men did not die in vain. They died for an idea. The good society, the best society. In Athens, well, we are a democracy. We are cultured. We are rich. We are powerful. We have everything going for us. We are Athenians full of hubris. Lincoln was telling the American people, look, 
I feel the terrible moral weight of 16,000 dead young men in front of me. And it can't help but be oppressive and painful. But we are fighting for a cause. We are fighting for the idea of self-government, of representative government, of human freedom. And this is worth fighting for, and it's worth dying for. That's what Pericles is trying to persuade the Athenian audience of. That you're dying for the great city of Athens. And look, everybody dies sooner or later anyway. If you manage to die for something worthwhile, for something worth sacrificing for, then you have died well. You have not died in vain. So, he persuades the Athenians that the sacrifice of these young men is worth it. And it's a beautiful, powerful speech. Um, I wonder how much of it is actually true. In other words, he flatters the Athenians by telling them, look, the reason why Athens is worth fighting for, whereas nobody in their right mind would fight for Corinth, is because Athens is the greatest possible society. We are tough guys, and we're at least as tough as the Spartans, man's man. But we don't spend all our time beating each other up, preparing for war. We have culture. We have poetry. We have drama. We have both comedy and tragedy. We have lyric poetry. We have the crazy ramblings of Herodotus. All right? We have all kinds of great stuff. Look at the Parthenon. <coughs> By comparison, Sparta is a provincial village. Look at our statues. Our statues are superior to any others. Our art, because they have painting then, but we don't have, that didn't last, we don't have much of a tradition of that. We have painting, we have drama, we have poetry, we have history. <coughs> God knows we have philosophy. Because Socrates is around, walking around asking people questions. And he said, look, we have done better than any other culture ever has done. If anything in this world is worth living and dying for, it's Athens. So he is flattering the Athenians prodigiously. Athenians don't just mourn their sons. They quickly have sex to provide us with cannon fodder 20 years down the road. Go right to work, ladies and gentlemen. But we need those boys. And it may take 20 years, but we will do it. Any sacrifice is worth it to defeat the enemies of Athens. In that respect, he sounds like FDR talking about the Nazis. Okay. This speech idealizes Athens. In other words, remember when we I talked about those Kuros boys, those perfect human specimens with no scars and no malform malformations, perfect idealized human forms. And they're all essentially the same statue again and again and again and again. They all have the right foot out. They all have the hands like this. It's, a, it's an idealization of the human form. That's one of the things that the Athenians are good at. Their sculpture is an ideal of the human form, not just the Kuros boys. And 
Their epic poetry is an idealization of the best kind of men. Granted, a primitive idealization. But what they're looking at, what's the very best? And the Athenians want the very best. And they're convinced that they are the very best. And talk to your grandfathers. Their generation defeated the mighty Persian Empire. And we will prevail over the Spartans. OK. So Pericles is giving something like a 4th of July oration. How great we are. And how wonderful we in particular are compared to all our rivals and enemies. And it's worth sacrificing for Athens, because Athens is worth living and dying for. There was a famous uh, anecdote about an Athenian, because they were all kind of chauvinistic about Athens. They look, Athens is the best place in the world. It's like talking to New Yorkers about New York, if you know any of them. But they all think that New York is the center of the universe. OK. Um, a guy said to this Athenian, you're only famous because you come from Athens, not because you're talented. And he said, look, if I had your talents and I was born where you are, granted, I would never have been anything. But if you had been an Athenian and you had your talents, you still wouldn't have been anything. <laughs> <laughs> He's not going to rug it. I mean, again, the Athenians are full of goobers. And they're going to pay. Yeah? Um, yeah, I ironic at one point when Pericles says, you know, how, he says we trust in our people, in our individual citizens, more than we trust our system of government. Mm -hmm. But even, but his whole speech is actually the total opposite of that because he's making the speech because he needs the democratic government to work in favor. That's exactly of right. So they don't actually trust, like he's controlling the citizens by doing that. That's a clever girl. That's exactly right. A smart democratic politician knows how to talk the people into things that they don't know they want. <laughs> In other words, they're actually more like Steve Jobs and Apple. He says, look, I don't want to give people what they want. I want to figure out what they want, then tell them, and then sell them a zillion of them, which is, in fact, what he does. Steve Jobs once said that if Henry Ford had listened to his customers, he would have made faster horses. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, that's the wrong way to handle that. I have a new idea to replace the horse. A lot to be said for that. Now, the reason why Athens was well-governed under Pericles is because he was a smart, able leader. He was honest. He didn't let hubris go to his head. But he knew how to suck up to the boss, which is the Athenian people. So he praised them. He praised their heroic sons. You tell them how great they are and tell them that it doesn't get any better than us. People like to hear that. You can't be the American president of either party unless you tell America that. Right? We want to hear that we're really greater than everybody. And uh, what worries the rest of the world is that we believe it. Okay. Next, right after Pericles' funeral oration, and the irony should not be lost upon you. They now have the plague. Damn. Just when we would be in the best civilization ever. Now we have this stupid, pointless plague. There are a bunch of religious people in the Parthenon calling upon Athena. Remember, Athens is Athena's city. She's the patroness. And uh, asking her to fix this. 
These people are all ignorant and living in science 1.0. Remember that a new science is generally the uh, province of the smartest and best educated 1% of any society. Yeah. Couldn't you say that religious people today do the same thing except that we have science that can fix the problems? Funny you should mention that. Many uh, reductive atheists think exactly that. Not, I mean, again, it's a debatable problem, but yeah, um, human nature doesn't change much across space and time. All right. So they get hit with the plague. What do we find out about the plague? Well, one, it's mostly lethal. Yeah. That it moves throughout like your whole body, starting with your brain, and then. Okay. Yeah. Um, he gives a scientific description of the symptoms. This owes much to the tradition of Hippocratic medicine, which is composed largely of case studies in which they pile one case upon another case upon another case, looking for patterns, which is not an irrational thing to do by any means. So Thucydides tells how it's spread, what helps, what doesn't help, and if we encounter this again, there's no point in going and asking Athena for help, there's no point in sacrificing bulls to Apollo, none of that's going to work. Best thing to do, maintain social cohesion and discipline, that gives everybody the best chance to survive. But prospect of death is extremely destructive of social cohesion. It's potentially destructive of an entire society. They were lucky that this wasn't like any of the more total plagues. I mean, if you can imagine something like the Ebola virus becoming airborne, you know, if it mutated and you could pass it by breathing, um, that would cause a billion casualties. So here, it's limited in its scope and in its duration, but everybody that gets caught up in it, their life is at risk. So we're going to leave religion to the old ladies and to the ignorant. It keeps them in line, makes them happy. But those who are educated, who are in the know, who know that the gods and goddesses have nothing to do with epidemic diseases, they're going to pursue the kind of path I recommend, because I lived through it, I know what's going on. He's writing first-person history, and that's that's particularly hard to do in an objective way. Almost every uh, first-person history, most of them anyway, are so hugely biased because they're trying to justify their own behavior. Thucydides is much less so. He works very hard at being even-handed. He doesn't represent his enemies as being inferior evil. They're just different. Okay. So we have a this worldly science 2.0 account of the epidemic, which takes Pericles and now leaves the
the Athenians in a terrible bind because none of the other potential leaders are intelligent, capable, or honest. Instead, they get into the habit of flattering the people, treating it like a giant beast that's kind of moody. So you throw it some fresh meat every once in a while. You make them happy, you get them to vote your way. Okay. We move to book three, in which Thucydides gives us one of the greatest contributions in his history. I mean, the, the introduction is very famous, and the, meal, and the uh, oration is very famous, so is the plague. But one of the most famous, and something that very much deserves your attention, is the revolution at Corsaire. All right? The Corsairans are having a civil war. And civil war is the worst thing that can happen to a society. Why? Because your neighbors will cut your throat. And their neighbors will cut theirs. And what we have is what game theorists call a negative sum game where everybody loses. In other words, a properly functioning society where everyone accepts the mores and accepts the laws of that society, um, that's actually beneficial to everybody. All right? Because at least you have security, you have, the, you, have, you have your life. You don't have that in the case of civil war. That means that all bets are off, there's no right and wrong, and everyone is only as secure as his own spear and sword. Civilization comes to a halt, and we are thrown back into barbarism. Now, what causes this kind of civic breakdown? This is important, all right? Thucydides says, and correctly says, once again, something we learned from Thucydides, that every society, even one apparently peaceful and tranquil and well-governed, every one of them is secretly split between the haves and the have-nots, between the rich and the poor, between the free and the slave, between those who operate the government for their benefit and the benefit of their social class, and those that are frozen out, who are always the majority. This is actually very important to consider. Right? Any functioning society is going to have differential property. The reason why is that even if you gave everybody exactly the same amount of property on day one, on day two, some of them will have wasted it, some of them will have thrown it away, some of them will have given up their inheritance for porridge. Um, <laughs> they do all kinds of stupid stuff, which means on day two, you're going to have inequality again. And then if you want equality, then on day three, you're going to have to make everybody equal again. There's no society that can actually keep people equal, either in their property or in their abilities. In other words, we are a social animal. We are also a hierarchical animal. All of our simian cousins, like chimps, have an established social pecking order. 
with an alpha male on top. Okay, so we're social animals, but we're also hierarchical animals. And this inequality is dangerous. The way in which we manage this danger is by showing appreciation and solicitude for the many, the poor, the dispossessed. Think of bread and circuses among the Roman mob. You keep them happy by giving them stuff. And then, if they're happy, they're willing to accept the legal inequality of property, of political power, all kinds of stuff. Okay? So there's a tension in every society between the wealthy and the poor. This is the secret reason why Plato is going to insist on communism for his rulers. The rulers are going to be put on a subsistence wage in the Republic. Which means that we're going to give back to the workers the maximum possible return. So, if they ever decide to have a revolution, whoever they put in instead is going to give them less of what they want. It's actually a stroke of genius. What he's done is take is precociously understood Marx's idea of surplus value, which is what gets extracted from the people that make it. And he said, yeah, I understand surplus value. We're giving the absolute minimum surplus to the rulers. That's going to keep them honest. And that's going to keep the bronze people, who only want to consume stuff anyway, fat and happy. And fat and happy means the rulers get to run things, and everything works like a clockwork. The problem that we're going to see in Corsairo is that this split between the poor and the rich goes from bad to worse. Reasonable compromise, middle ground accommodation breaks down. And instead, we get something like, you've seen the uh, mitosis of a cell, two sets of chromosomes pulled to opposite parts, and then it divides. Well, the problem is, when it divides, it's the war of all against all. Rich against poor, but then again, if the poor win, then they're going to set on, start killing each other, because that's the way revolutions happen. All right? So the point then is that there is an undetected, undisclosed split in society that no one has a fully satisfactory way of handling. The best way is for the Aristoi, the few, to show a prudent and decent regard for the well-being of the less fortunate. In other words, I know it's going to sound strange, but Christian charity is deeply conservative. One of the reasons why we have the particular problems we do now currently in politics is that income inequality in the United States has enormously skyrocketed over the last 30 years. And there are people, particularly the white, blue-collar working class in the Rust Belt, that have been left out of this. And they're having real, real difficulties. And the result is revolt against elites. All right? So in other words, um, Donald Trump is actually the fault of the shot callers in both parties. The smart thing that any ruling class does is to gain the loyalty and support 
of their own underclass. And the way you do that is by taking care of them. Think of the old uh, Chicago machine with Mayor Daley. Don't make no waves, don't back no losers. What can I do for you? All right? You take care of them, they vote your way, you can steal all you want because you're taking care of the people in your, in your ward. All right? And it's not just Chicago. New York politics work that way. Philadelphia, San Francisco, all of them do. Or did. Okay. So we have a split between the rich and the poor. This can be fixed if you can find some happy middle ground. All right? If you find an equilibrium that everybody can agree to or most people can agree to. But if you don't, then you get faction. And the worst kind of faction is parties. In the ancient world and in the medieval world, actually up until the 19th century, everybody thought that parties were immoral. I know it's going to sound strange to you. Um, you probably have noticed that the US Constitution does not mention political parties. That's actually important because just about the first thing they did within 10 years of starting the country, they had political parties. The reason why they did is because you needed to organize a legislature. You can't legislate without it. You have to have party discipline so you get everybody moving in the right direction or in the same direction to actually get things passed. So the point then is this. Um, finding that middle ground is necessary to politics. And it's something that no shrewd, prudent politician will take his eyes off. The funeral narration is a good example of saying, look, it's not just rich people that died here. Poor men's sons died too, and you're all part of this great thing, Athens. You are Athenians. Live up to your high heritage. Make the sacrifice because you know it is noble. Again, this is smart politics. Okay. What happens in Corsara is that the rich get supported by the Spartans because the Spartans are an oligarchy. The poor get supported by the Athenians. Why? Well, because they're not, they're not, the Spartans are supporting the other side. But also, the poor like the idea of democracy because they get to tailor the government to themselves. And so the Spartans send troops and arms to help the oligarchs control the city. But then, of course, as proxy wars always do, because this is actually um, a war between Athens and Sparta using these others as their uh, placeholders, as their tokens. So the Athenians help the poor people. They rally them, they bring them troops, they bring them arms, and they help them beat back the rich folks. But then they go home too. And then the Spartans come back. And they help drive the Democrats out and support the rich oligarchs. So they do this back and forth, back and forth a couple of times. During this time, <clears throat> social trust breaks down. And this is hugely important. It's not possible, because what, what Corsara needs is somebody that's smart, preferably from the elite, who decides <clears throat> that, what, that our current course is suicidal and what we need to do is find some common ground with the leaders of the demos. Okay, the problem is this. Once social trust breaks down, it begins to spiral out of control. It disequilibrates. All right? 
And as a result, nobody trusts somebody that says, let's offer them a knowledge brand, an olive, an olive branch. No, if you do that, you're not really with us. You're not really one of the aristocrats. Can't do that. Only a, a whip would offer an olive branch. We need absolute victory. And there are no doubt some of the more prudent in the, among the people who say, look, you know, we have a really nice city here, and we're in the process of destroying it and destroying each other. And we actually don't gain from that. We lose from that, which is true. But the problem is, they say, then you're really not a Democrat. Only the complete triumph of democracy is acceptable. What that means is it was impo increasingly impossible to find any common compromise, any middle ground. And these extremes become more and more extreme in their antipathy to the other. And what that means is it's not possible to reinstate the equilibrium of a peaceful society. So the only thing you can be agreed upon is mutual destruction. Rich folks are going to kill the poor people. Poor people are going to kill the rich folks. Uh, one, because the, the poor people had an advantage at one point, the rich folks decided the only way to save the town is to set it on fire, which they do. So they burn their own city down, much to the displeasure of the demos who were living there. But on the other hand, the demos gets back and kills a bunch of the aristocrats. So what do we have? Eventually, they destroy one another, and there's eventually no such city as Corsair. It disappears. The city's been destroyed, not by an outside invading army. It's been destroyed by the people who were living there. All right? So faction and party were always thought of as being a bad thing. One of the, worth noting, if any of you studied American history, in the Federalist era, say the 1790s, between the time of the Constitution and, say, 1800 when Thomas Jefferson gets elected, both the Federalists, or the nascent Federalist Party, and what will become the Democrat Party, which is the support of Thomas Jefferson, spend a lot of time in speeches and in newspapers attacking each other as members of a party. <laughs> you're partisan. And they say, look, you're partisan. I'm not partisan. I represent the common good. You, on the other hand, are, are, are factious. And factious people lead towards civil war. That's why Madison's Federalist Ted tries to handle the problem of faction, because they have all this ancient history showing that when you split a society into different groups, those factions are dangerous. And the nth degree of faction is party. So we only try to help your party, not your city as a whole. The result of that is mutual self-destruction. Yeah. Doesn't Madison also what? Doesn't Madison also speak how factions are necessary to liberty? Well, no, they inevitably emerge. But, lucky us, our, our society is so big and so complicated that it's going to generate all kinds of different pressure groups. And these pressure groups will be in a constantly kaleidoscopic reorientation. So no one party will actually coalesce to dominate, which takes less than 10 years not to happen. So Madison says, yeah, fortunately, we're not going to have any settled political parties. Um, the Democratic Party that, you vote, that people vote for now started in 1800. The Republican Party started in 1856. That's a very long-lasting set of parties. And what holds them together? 
opposition to the other guys, nothing much else. Okay? All right. The great and pregnant line that Thucydides gives us in Corsara is, words change their ordinary meanings. And this is indeed a powerful indicator. It is a symptom of a society moving towards mutual destruction. Courage now means sneakiness and fanaticism. Being reasonable now means completely distrusting the other side, refusing all attempts to make peace. People that really like our side have no moral scruples, and that's new, a superior kind of morality. So what counts as moral has changed? What counts as reasonable has changed? What counts as politically advantageous has changed? <coughs> the breakup of language is a sign of a society in an advanced state of decay. What's a family? What's a marriage? Is a man in a dress a woman? We are in a similar sort of case right now. Language is starting to slip. And it becomes a contested area. <clears throat> but what that means is you have to keep your opponents from speaking. I mean, partially by not giving them a chance to speak, but in other ways by disallowing the use of their main ideas. So right now we're in the midst of uh, <clears throat> a very dangerous age right, where we have dueling fanaticisms and increasingly fewer and fewer people who are able to make those bipartisan reaches across the aisle to get something done. So we have the bitterest, most outrageous vituperation. And emotion and sentiment is all justified. How does that make you feel? Does that threaten your identity? That's a shame. Because, you know, we didn't realize how sensitive left-handed vegans were. <laughs> okay. Um, American politics is currently in an advanced stage of Corsara. It's something well worth looking at. It's very much worth thinking about. The only people that are worth thinking that are worth actually returning as politicians are the ones who see how dysfunctional this is and think that the solution is not the complete annihilation of my opponents. All right, that's totalitarian. And that leads only in one direction. Yeah. We might uh, destroy ourselves before we get to the Thucydides trap. Certainly possible. Um, uh, certainly the Russians are hoping so. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, although our technology is vastly different and our science is vastly different, our impulses and the things that make us human are pretty much the same. Think about Aristophanes, right? Lysistrata. The women in both Athens and Sparta have a sex strike 
until the men decide to make peace. <laughs> now that's an intrinsically funny idea. You're all smiling, and that's funny. Here's the question. Why is a 2,400-year-old joke funny? I mean, often we say that's an old joke. Well, here's a joke that everybody laughs at. You're all laughing. You're all smiling. Yeah, that is a funny idea. It's an intrinsically funny idea. A sex strike for peace. <laughs> all right, but the point is, um, what you find funny about it is exactly what the Athenians found funny about. So there's something continuous in human nature between you and them, even though a hundred generations separate us. Watch words changing their, changing their ordinary meanings. What's a boy? What's a girl? What's people who claim to be none of the above? Alright? So, that's something that you can learn from right now. That when language begins to slip, a society is in trouble. Right. I mean, if two men and two women get married, I don't see why three men and three women can't get married. I mean, why not? And if I can, if you can marry three women and a coffee table, um, okay. It's just that whatever you mean by marriage under those circumstances is not what we ordinarily meant by marriage back when we thought the idea of. All right. Okay. The big payoff in this book, next, the Melian dialogue. The poor Melians. On the other hand, Thucydides doesn't want us to be sympathetic to them. Why? Because they cause their own destruction. Real life is not a fairy tale. The good does not always triumph. Innocence does not always prevail. Morality is often thwarted. And as the Athenians would point out, different people have different ideas about what's moral. There's what's moral for me, because I have a big army. And this is what's moral for you, because you have a small one. Well, the, the Melians say, well, couldn't we have the idea of friendly equality, where we like you, and you like us, and we like the Spartans, but you don't like them so much, but that's cool. But we're all going to get along. We're going to be neutral. And the Athenians say, look, we're running this shakedown operation. All right, we've been running it for several generations now. Right. We can't let you pull out and decide not to pay the tribute. Because if you do, the others will too. And if the others do that, we're going to lose our greatest advantage in fighting the Spartans. We can't allow that. So the fact of the matter is this. We're not equals. <clears throat> All right. You're weak and we're strong. And in nature, Fuses, um, the strong eat the weak. If you look at a falcon and ask why it eats doves, the answer is because they're tasty. I mean, the falcon doesn't feel bad, doesn't have pangs of conscience saying, oh boy, I feel really bad about this. It says, where can I find another one of these? I'm going to eat them all. Right? Nature does not have the idea of justice 
except insofar as it is red in tooth and claw. By nature, not by phusis, not nomos, big armies prevail over small armies. And you millions are going to knuckle under. You're going to give us unconditional surrender right now, or we're going to lay siege to you, and then we're going to kill everyone and everything in your city. And that's not some kind of a poetic flourish. They intend to kill all the adult males. The women will be raped, and the children will be sold into slavery along with the women. And then, the Milos will exist, but the Melians won't. Then we'll get 500 more settlers from Athens. We'll put them in your houses. So here's the deal. Surrender now, or we'll annihilate you. No Geneva Convention here. It's going to be like the end of Troy. Well, they say, look, um, you're talking about power and war and stuff. We're talking about righteousness and ethics and religion and tradition and goodness and all-around moral virtue. Athenians say, look, don't be stupid. Moral virtue is going to get you killed. Right. Fact of the matter is, you give up now and you accept whatever punishment we decide to dish out to you, which could be your annihilation, or you can have us annihilate you by storming the city. Take your chances with giving up or fight, it, fight to the death, your death. And the Athenians say, well, what about justice and virtue? And the Athenians say, look, you think you have justice and religion on your side. We think we have justice and religion on our side. We have some new ideas about these things. Give in with the sophists. We won't bother with telling you who or how. But the idea is this. First of all, justice is not everybody being fair. Justice is the advantage of the stronger. We are a great big army. You're a little army. So what serves our purposes and what we want is justice. And you failing to do that, that's unjust. And if you are engaged in that kind of injustice, we're going to kill you. So we have a different idea of religion, too. We've noticed, first of all, that the gods like godlike men, which sounds remarkably like us. Ask Pericles, he'll tell you how great we are. He's dead now, but... I mean, he did. We wrote down his, his speech, and believe me, we are the greatest of human beings. Our greatness is really amazing. I mean, you almost have to shield your eyes looking, for, looking at us. We are really great. So number one, we're better. We're not even. Number two, yeah, I mean, the gods don't like forcible destruction, meaningless death. But We've also noticed that the gods can be bought. One of the things we learned from Homer, God bless Homer, is that if you piss the gods off, you sacrifice a lot of oxen to them and stuff, and you give them a bunch of other sacrifices, and they smell the sacrifices, the smoke goes to Mount Olympus or wherever it goes, they like that, and they let you slide. So what it means is what they've learned from Homer is what Cephalus has learned from Homer. The gods can be bribed. 
Now, if you think the gods can be bribed, that is an invitation to every kind of moral evil. Because as long as you have enough money to buy enough bulls to sacrifice, the gods are relaxed, they're forgiving. Gods like the winners anyway. So, what that means is that the Melians have modified ideas about religion and ethics, also about human virtue. In addition, they believe themselves entitled to oppress those who are weak. Okay. The Melians, now remember the Melians don't take this before their people because the Melian leaders say, no, look, you tell our people the size of the armies that are out there, they're all going to give up. And what that means is the Athenians are going to walk into our open gates and then they're going to cut all our heads off at least. So let's die fighting for our city. And they do. They fight for their city. They last a, a short period of time. And then they're overwhelmed. And then the Athenians do exactly what they said they would do. They kill every adult male. Women are raped. Children are sold along with them into slavery. And now the millions don't exist. Thucydides, in this case, is writing something like Aesop's Fables for adults. You're supposed to take a lesson from this. That power is decisive in political life. And that ultimately means violence. They also say, this is something that will be interesting particularly to Christians. For us Christians, the theological virtues are faith, hope, and charity. I think it's a good idea. Don't leave home without them. Will there be other accounts of virtue too, like Plato when he says, it's wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice. I like those things too. I think they're all really good ideas. But for a Christian, hope is a virtue. For the Athenians and for the Greeks in general, hope is a vice, or actually, it straddles the line between virtue and vice. Mostly, it's what people do. People start to really hope a lot when they, their condition is hopeless. In other words, when they have no chance of winning, that's the time to bring out the hope. And he says, that kind of stupid stuff is going to get you killed. That's for children. The gods and religion are not going to decide this. So your hope is going to get you killed. Remember how hope comes into the world for the Greeks. Remember the story of Pandora's box? The gods are pissed off because they lost the fire of the gods with Prometheus. So they send all the evils of human life down to people, but they put it in a box, give it to Pandora, say, Pandora, don't open the box, Pandora opens the box, all this stuff flies out. But she closes it really quick, and she hears something inside rattling around, she says, let me out. And she says, well, what the hell? You know, I've let out murder and theft and arson and disease and all kinds of bad stuff. I might as well let this one out, too. Opens, it, opens up the box, the last of the, of the evils to come out is hope. It's the best of the evils or the evilest of the goods, depending on how you look at it. But for the Greeks, hope is more vice than virtue. They say, look, in practice, it's going to get you killed. Don't be stupid. 
yeah, you could hope that God will raise Joan of Arc to protect you and your society or something like that. Um, that's going to get you killed too. Fact of the matter is, we have a big army and that's the only relevant question. The strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. That's rugged. And yet, um, there is no small element of truth about practical politics of that. The good does not always win. Sometimes evil or cruelty or terror prevail. It's not that there's no justice in history, it's just that the justice in history is imperfect and uncertain. Yeah, but I am? No, hand fake, sorry. Okay. Um, genocide is the result of war. What that means is when we go to war, we are playing for the highest possible stakes. It's the ultimate risk. Conquer or die. And Thucydides says explicitly that, uh, look, we have to keep expanding in order to hold on to what we got. We can't stop. And the problem is this is exactly what Pericles said not to do. Pericles said, look, keep the ships in the harbor. Whenever things get hectic because the Spartans are attacking, put everybody on the ships, go to sea. The Spartans can't catch you there. Because it takes a long time. It's very hard to learn sh uh, seamanship and navigation. Um, Spartans can't, ca can't catch you. Bring the civilians off and land at some other island and send the naval ships to attack Sparta. That's a winning strategy. The Spartans can't beat that. But the Athenians give up on that. And it's a real great way. Um, if Those of you who are on uh, sports teams, your coaches will occasionally insist that you think about the fact that you not beat yourself. In other words, it's bad enough if the opposing team beats us, but what we don't want to do is beat ourselves. Don't throw an interception. Don't fumble the ball. If you do that, they're going to win, and they're not going to win because they win. They're going to win because you lost. All right. So don't do anything stupid, foolish, ill-considered. So what they do is something foolish and stupid and ill-considered. Alcibiades, the flower of Athenian youth. You gotta like this guy. All right, Alcibiades is the product of a corrupt society that has given him a corrupt education. He has been taught by sophists how to speak well. He comes from a wealthy, well-connected family. He's extremely handsome in a society that places big value on male beauty. Right? And he's a man of ambition and all kinds of plans and no moral scruples. What he wants 
is to desire things and then to satisfy those desires and then go on to even bigger desires and then satisfy them. It's the Hobbesian view of human life. We are desiring creatures who desire until we die. And the point of human life for Alcibiades is to have these great desires and then to satisfy them. So his first attempt at this, <coughs> is towards the end of the war. Now, there had been a brief kind of halftime. It's called the Peace of Nicias, where a smart politician, Nicias, managed to get a, an armistice between Athens and Sparta. And the Spartans actually come because they realize that they're not, being, they're not able to face the Athenians because they have such naval power. They want peace. And look, when the Spartans want peace, for God's sake, give it to them. Don't be an idiot. But the Athenians say, no, we're winning this war. And we know we're winning this war. When the Spartans come knocking on the door saying they want peace, that means they're in bad shape. So no, we're going to go the whole way. Because we haven't shown you enough hubris yet. We've got to go the whole way. We're given a chance not to, get, not to destroy ourselves. And we're going to voluntarily turn it down out of ambition and pride and hubris. They beat themselves. Now, Alcibiades has come of age after the Peace of Nicaea, so the war's been restarting. And he says, people, listen to me. I'm a decorated war hero. I have fought for Sparta. And I have many people who say that I'm a war hero. I got all kinds of honors when I came back from my military service. I got promoted, and I know what is best for Athens. You know what we should do? Look, the, the Spartans are beaten. Don't worry about that. Famous last words. Idiotic pride. He says, don't worry about the Spartans, because they're no real threat anymore. We got the wall. We're holding them off. We can always pop some ships up to them. We know how to beat them. So now, let's do something else. Now, you've got to remember that for the majority of people, they have a very short attention span. And you must remember that this is a time when the science of cartography is in its infancy. So getting an accurate map of things is not an easy thing to do. Now, the Athenians are running the Delian League. They essentially are in control of the islands of Ionia. And they say... Or Alcibiades says, I have a great idea. Let's conquer Sicily. Sicily's a rich place. Sicily has all kinds of great stuff. Sicily has is just there for the taking. It was originally founded by Greeks. And if we get that, we'll have an even more money and even more power even more of everything than we already have now. And what Alcibiades is sure of, he wants more, more of everything. And so the people say, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. What a great speech. Let's invade Sicily. Now, you have to consider a map of the Mediterranean because cartography has advanced quite considerably. <laughs> and if you look at the size of Athens and then you compare it to the size of Sicily, you can easily see that the idea of invading Sicily is stark raving mad. It's just crazy because Sicily is 50 or 100 times bigger than Athens. And it's on the other side of the Mediterranean. 
And what you would have to do in order to invade Sicily is the fundamental, the most serious beginner's mistake that only an absolute military idiot would do is split their forces during a war. The whole point, what made Napoleon so great is he always concentrated his forces. All great conquerors do. Alcibiades said, I have a different idea, it's even better. <laughs> Let's split our forces and send most of our ships and most of our soldiers to the other side of the Mediterranean. We conquer that, we bring them back here, we mop up the Spartans, and then we're in control of the bed. And from there, who knows? The Persians better watch out. The Egyptians better watch out. Hell, everybody better watch out. Because Alcibiades is on a roll. And the people clap, they think that's a great speech. Most, almost all of them are illiterate, none of them has ever seen an accurate map. They're told that there's a faraway place called Sicily that has lots of stuff for them to invade. So they say, yeah, let's go. And Alcibiades says, one more thing. I propose that I be named general. <laughs> <laughs> that, I should be, that I should be given the job. Look, I'm a decor decorated war hero. I've shown myself to be a great fighter. And man, my strategic understanding, superior to all others. I'm the guy you want. Now, the war honors that he's gotten came because Socrates actually fought like a devil, and he was going to be given these, but Socrates disdained them because he wasn't interested in medals. So he said, give them to Alcibiades, he really likes that kind of thing. And they did. <laughs> <laughs> so Alcibiades comes back to Athens saying, check this out, I got a chest full of medals, I am a great war hero. Actually, he did nothing to deserve that. I mean, we're going to find that out in the symposium. But, the people are really impressed. They say, wow, that's a lot of medals. You have all kinds of military honors. You're our guy. We're going to invade Sicily. Now, they don't know Sicily from the moon. But they say, yeah, that's a great idea. This is part of why, in the ancient world, democracy has such a bad reputation. It's the rule of the stupid and the excitable. And the problem is, they're easily misled and do stupid stuff. All right. Alcibiades is a piece of work. Okay. Um, Alcibiades is in love with Socrates. He has a homosexual love of him, but also a philosophical love of him, which is why he tries to seduce Socrates, and Socrates laughs at him. And then he runs away from Socrates because Socrates makes him feel bad about himself. I mean, look, when you talk to Socrates, he strips you of everything and makes you realize what an idiot you are. Alcibiades cannot cope with that experience. He's had it done to him a couple of times, he doesn't like it. So he runs away from Socrates, doing everything he can not to get involved in that. Okay. Now, Alcibiades gets named general, God help us. And they put together a big naval flotilla. They have lots of hoplites, lots of soldiers. They got horses for the cavalry. They got provisions. They got everything for the big invasion of Sicily. More than half their navy and army are going there. And they think this is going to be an easy run. We're going to take over the land of milk and honey, and we're going to clean up. Okay. The night before they go, Alcibiades and the lads get hammered. I mean, they, remember, Alcibiades is a chronic drunk, too. Most of the elite of Athens are chronic drunks. Right? <laughs> I mean, again, Plato's going to be savage with them 
in the symposium. But the point is that Alcibiades goes on a drunk with his friends, and they're going through the city doing the idiot stuff that young men do when intoxicated. I mean, it's got to happen here once in a while. I, I don't doubt for a minute. Look, there's no college campus where it doesn't happen occasionally. Don't be stupid. I mean, I don't live in the dorms, but I, I was in a dorm at one time. I know what goes on. Right? So don't give me any of the crap about what they tell the parents on parents weekend. That's not how the world works. Look, I went to college. Don't tell me. Right? Look, I used to be 20. Right? And all the stuff that you think is really new turns out not to be. Uh, people have been doing it for a very long time. And you think you've just invented it, but in fact, it's the commonest thing in the world. Right. Uh, we'll, we'll go there later. For now, I want to talk about Alcibiades. They get drunk, and in the townhouses in the city of Athens, they have these statues that are the household gods are out front. And it's a, a statue stripped down of Hermes with just a head and a penis. No, it's sex and the brain, passion and thought. All right, That's Hermes. And these guys are so hammered they decided it would be a good idea to, to wreck all these household gods. So they walk through the streets, screaming and acting stupid, doing the, you know, the Three Stooges stuff that boys do under the influence. And they wreck the household gods. And then, after they've paraded through the city, destroying the household gods as they go, they all go back to their houses, because they have to be up early so they can invade Sicily. They're up early. They all get on the boats, away to Sicily. The uh, fathers of the city get up, and particularly these are the well-established, wealthy families. They say, someone has defaced our household gods. This is sacrilege. They look around, and they can't see anybody volunteering that they did this. So they say, I bet it had something to do with the guys who have gone to Sicily. This is not uh, a prophetic omen, but the Athenians take it to be a, pathetic, a, a prophetic omen because the guys in whom they have entrusted their military power have just committed sacrilege, and the gods are going to make us pay for that. So the Athenians are really scared. They ask around. They find out that it was Alcibiades and his power. They indict Alcibiades for sacrilege and blasphemy. And they send another ship after the flotilla of ships that they've sent to Sicily. The problem is, of course, Sicily is a big place, and they don't know where the guys are going or where they're going to be landing. So the ship goes in search of, of Alcibiades. <coughs> Alcibiades has landed his troops. The ships are patrolling around looking for vessels to attack. And he's organizing his army to take over Sicily. All right. Now, you have to remember, this is like Naples trying to take over Georgia. Right? It's a completely disproportionate, crazy idea. It's the single worst military strategy there is, dividing your forces. I mean, it just doesn't get any worse than that. Beginner mistakes don't get any more beginner than that. The first thing you'll get taught if you're studying military strategy in a place like West Point, is that you focus and concentrate your forces. Here, they're going to do the opposite because Alcibiades is an exception to all that. Okay. They get there, 
And the people from the Athenian court come and say, Alcibiades, you're under arrest. We're bringing you back for seditious blasphemy and sacrilege. We're going to appoint someone else to run the Athenian expedition. Alcibiades thinks it over, sees the writing on the wall, gets together with some of his closer friends, jumps on a ship, sails to Sparta. Gotta like it. Says to the Spartans, you gotta like this. I know the Athenian forces, and I know the Athenian defenses. I will give you Athens if, after you conquer it, you let me run things, which is what he wanted to begin with. He doesn't care who wins and who loses as long as he's the boss. Now, Spartans don't know quite what to do with Alcibiades because he's not like the Spartans. I mean, he's a talker. Um, he's, uh, he, he's kind of effete. Right? He's not a tough guy the way the Spartans are. All right? Spartans are hardened by battle. Alcibiades is a poser. And he's an Athenian poser that talks all the time. And gives great speeches, but nobody knows what, if any, of this to believe. So Spartans say, okay, you got a deal. So he gives them information about the Sicilian expedition and how Athens is poorly guarded now. And while he's in Sparta, the Athenian expedition gets annihilated by the Sicilians. So all of their land armies are captured, and they're put in a, a, a kind of pit mine, right, where they mine uh, metals. And they're down there. And that way, because they're surrounded by Sicilian troops, they can't get out. There's no place for them to go. And they're given minimal rations and they're not protected from the elements, and they get sick, and they begin to commit suicide, and eventually the Sicilians just use bows and arrows to kill them all. So they massacre the entire army. The navy gets met with a Sicilian flotilla. The Sicilians beat them on the, ground, on the uh, sea, too. So now, Athens has destroyed the majority of its navy and its army. And the inside dope on their defenses has been given to them by the former Athenian general, Alcibiades. Yeah. Did he just, like, was that his plan all along? No, no. He just made it up as he goes along. Look, they're going to they're gonna kill me if they bring me back to trial in Athens. That's for sure. Yeah. So he says, you've got to go. Where are you going to go? Go to the Spartans. Turn sides. Okay, this is great. Now, this is what happens if you have no loyalty to anyone but yourself. Right? It's all about you. So, it gets better. I mean, we're not done with this guy. <laughs> Spartans have two senior officials called ephors. One of them stays home during war season. Remember, the Spartans every spring go out and make war on somebody. Um, one goes with the army, and one stays home. Reasonable division of labor. Okay. Spartans march down and lay siege to Athens. Uh, they, the siege is not immediately successful, but they're gradually making inroads on Athens. But at the end of the fall, they have to come back because they're out of rations. They need to wait until they get um, enough food and they'll move in the spring when the weather is better. Okay. While they're gone, 
the wife of the military E4, turns out to be pregnant. Now, the E4 thinks that's peculiar because he's been gone more than nine months. And he thinks that's really odd because, I mean, no one has ever done this before. And no one in their right mind would seduce the wife of an E4. Look, the Spartans kill you if you're a weak child, much less if you I mean, mess with the, the wife of the main magistrate. You just can't do that. So they look around and say, who would do damn stupid thing? Yes, indeed. Alcibiades has decided that he's going to run Athens, but also that his children are going to run Sparta. <laughs> Okay, now, you got a real piece of work here. This guy's a prize. So they, the Spartans do a quick investigation of this because they think it's irregular. <laughs> I mean, we haven't seen this before. And uh, at that point, Alcibiades splits. He takes off again, I guess on horseback, but I don't know how he gets away. The next we hear of him, he's in Persia. He has gone over to the Persian side. And now he's offered to let the Persians destroy both Athens and Sparta, provided he is allowed to rule Greece after they destroy it. You think I'm making this up? I don't have the brains to make this up. You know, it's, again, that's one of the great things about being a historian. You can't make this shit up. I mean, you just can't believe that somebody... Yes, Alcibiades is capable of doing that. So he turns and he turns and he turns. He's flipping on everybody. All he wants is to take care of himself. We never hear, the Persians don't invade. Uh, we never hear about uh, uh, Alcibiades in Persia until we hear that someone kills him. God knows for what. I mean, no doubt for good reason. All right? But that is the career of Alcibiades. Now, after the war is lost in 404 BC, the people that remain in Athens, because they don't completely destroy Athens, the people that remain there regret the Sicilian expedition, and they regret losing the Peloponnesian War, and they start looking for someone to blame. And they said, Alcibiades, he's the one who ruined it all. Alcibiades who tricked us into doing that foolish Sicilian expedition. And then, because Alcibiades is by now in Persia, dead, um, Say, you know why Alcibiades did that? Because he was taught by Socrates to hate his country. And so Socrates corrupted the youth of Athens. And he's the real reason, the secret reason, why we lost this war. So 399, they're going to try Socrates for debauching the youth of Athens and not believing the gods, they're going to condemn him to death, make him drink hemlock. Plato begins writing shortly after the death of Socrates. And he is white hot. He is in a blistering rage. You guys, these leftover Athenians, you destroyed my city, and you killed my master, and I'm going to make sure that no one knows anything about you for the rest of history except how corrupt and wicked and evil and idiotic you people are. So the Platonic Dialogues 
are a way of evening the score. They're a way of justifying Socrates and also calling into question the leadership and the form of government that Athens had. Thus, Socrates' apology. That's probably the first dialogue written. So, Athens destroyed Athens. They didn't lose the Peloponnesian War to these muttonheads. I mean, granted, the Spartans are ferocious, but they're not smart, they're not cultivated. I mean, there's some truth in what Pericles said about Athens. But, and this is something we're thinking about, the Greeks were too, or the Athenians were too smart for their own good. They outfoxed themselves. As a result, they lose a war that didn't need to happen and that they could have won. And now they want somebody to blame. And the guy they come up with is Socrates. And now Plato had already been in a white-hot rage about the idiocy of his country, deciding to engage in self-destructive behavior. You destroyed the greatest city in the history of the world, which is actually not far removed from Athens. That's actually a plausible account. You let the blunt instrument people win. And you did it because you were arrogant and full of hubris. You know why? Because you got raised on Homer and you got raised on tragedy. And all these things are about big guys doing big things in big ways, regardless of whether they know what's going on. So Plato then has an ax to grind. He says, I'm going to examine and evaluate Athenian politics and Athenian society. And I'm going to do kind of a post-mortem on Athens, try and figure out what went wrong. And his, exam and his answer is, in fact, very powerful, and there is much to learn from this. Plato concludes that the reason why Athens destroys itself is because there has been a disjunction, a separation of knowledge and power. The people that knew what was going on didn't get to make the decisions, like Socrates. The people that got to make decisions, none of them knew jack about what was going on. So of course they made stupid, foolish, self-destructive decisions. And now we have the smoking ruin of Athens. And you didn't even learn from that. You decided to blame Socrates and kill him because he taught Alcibiades how to give these great speeches. No, he didn't. That's a lie. What you're trying to do is cover your own tracks. And Plato will never forgive them for that. So you have to remember that some of the most important dialogues are written, are written in a rage worthy of Achilles. But it is an intellectual rage in one of the most gifted minds that has ever lived. And so in the ruins of Athens, he's going to create the great, arguably the greatest intellectual achievement in the, world, in the history of the world. I think that's a plausible account. You don't have to agree with me. You know, just that I have a thing for Plato, I think he's really great. I'll try and show you why I have that high estimation of him. All right? But for now, you know, it's like 
you want to smack yourself in the head saying, you Athenians, of course you're going to make idiotic decisions. The voters are, nit, are, are nitwits, and the people that voted for are halfwits. There's only one full wit in town, and that's Socrates, and you won't talk to him. Nitwits and halfwits. There are times when I look at contemporary American democracy, and I say, yeah, that's about right. I mean, the number of nitwits and nitwit ideas that are being floated in America today are quite substantial. And the number of halfwits that are cashing in on that, there's no adult in the room anymore. And that's one of the things that worries me about the current state of the country. Right? We actually spend deficit spending, we spend billions of dollars more than we take in every year. We did that last year despite the fact that we're at peace so that we could pay for a tax cut that we can't afford. And there's nobody in the Democratic Party or in the Republican Party that says, well, had it occurred to you that you can't spend more money than you have indefinitely? Now, that's the kind of thing that any adult would ask about that, but there aren't any adults in the room anymore. They say, no, no, we can keep on spending more than we take in forever. Well, here's the deal. The people that are lending you that money, sooner or later are going to catch on and realize you don't intend to pay it back. And then what's going to happen is that they're going to cut off buying more of your debt, more of those T-bills. And when they do, your economy will go into a tailspin, and it will bring the, the economy of the entire planet down with it. This is a disaster in the making. It is a completely predictable disaster. And yet, we don't want to vote for people that say, look, here's the deal. We're going to have to take a cut in our cost of in our." in our standard of living, and we're going to have to pay more taxes. Not only are we going to have to pay enough to cover our expenses, but we're going to have to pay enough to, spend, to pay off the $21 trillion that we have in debt. This year, for the first time, service on the debt is more than we spend on the Pentagon. And that's the interest. Okay. Um, democracy has many things to be said for it, but it has certain characteristic disadvantages. And one of them is that popular opinion is so often wrong. Something worth thinking about. It's why you get an education. You know, if you're going to go into public service, have enough nerve to say, I have an idea, why don't we pay our debts? Just me, you know, being an adult and all. All right? But instead, um, what Socrates says is that uh, it's like arguing a, a court case with a jury full of children. One side offers them candy that's poison, the other side offers them medicine that tastes bad, and they always want the candy that's poison. Powerful criticism of democracy. Now look, we have, 20, we have thousands of years more than Plato did. So we have good reason to believe that, Socrates, that democracy isn't intrinsically as bad as Plato thought. But given the evidence that Plato had at the time he was living, um, it's the only reasonable conclusion that when you have a society run by people that don't know what's going on and will clap for nearly anything that sounds good, um, they're going to make bad decisions and they're going to be led astray by demagogues. That's a fact. Human nature doesn't change much across space and time. All right? Now, next week, we are doing the Oristia. Who is going to present the Oristia? Have we decided on that? What is it about? Ah, okay. You will do the Agamemnon.
That's the first part of it. Okay. The next part, where Clytemnestra, where Clytemnestra gets hers, you will do that. And the final part, where we, the Furies turn into the Eumenides, the kindly ones, Examining your notes very carefully. Yep, yeah, there we go. There we go. All right, volunteer get called on. It's a hard world. All right, here's the deal. I want you to read the Orstaya, talk to each other, the ones that are presenting it, and the big question is, why does the Orstaya end the way it does? I will see you all next week. Thank you.